0: Hey everybody, it's Brock Polk and I wanna thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. If you're one of our guests, I'm especially thankful to have you joining us. I believe that human beings were designed for community and our faith, if you're a believer, our faith needs community to help it grow. And so it's incredibly important, incredibly important for us to connect with one another as a regular part of our spiritual journey. And I'm especially glad this morning to be able to welcome our young children, some of our youngest members of our church those who are typically down the hall in the children's ministry wing during this time, but who are joining us for the service today. I had my doubts about the wisdom of asking the kids to sit through one of my sermons, but the rest of the ministry staff assured me that if the grown-ups have to go through this every week, the kids can handle it once. So here we are. You know, it's true that one of the primary tasks of a faith community is to help pass on faith to the next generation. And I am so, so grateful that our church family makes that a priority. I'm thrilled to have the young children in here with us today. In fact, I want to give a quick message to all the parents of young children that if your kids make noise this morning in church, we're thrilled about that. Like, we love, we love having them in the room, so please don't be embarrassed about it at all. But I also want to tell you that Passing on Faith to the Next Generation is actually the springboard for the series of messages that I've been sharing all summer. We have called this series of messages Flannel Graph Favorites, and that name refers to a, a teaching tool that was used for decades in children's Sunday school classes to teach kids like me the stories of the Bible. Now, a flannograph, maybe you've heard me say already this summer, a flannograph is really just a, a board with some felt wrapped around it. It's not very complicated technology, but between the different images that could be placed on it, a flannograph in the hands of a skilled Sunday school teacher who is equipped with some character cutouts could become a doorway to the world of the Bible. And I am forever indebted, forever indebted to the Sunday school teachers who invested their time and their talent to build a foundation of Bible knowledge in me when I was just a child. But I have discovered, as I've gotten older, that a bunch of the stories contained in this library, including a bunch of the stories that my Sunday school teachers taught to me using the flannel graph, a bunch of these stories are much more complicated than those teachers initially let on. Those teachers had to be careful when I was two, three, four, five years old. Those teachers had to be careful to prioritize the age appropriate aspects of the stories that we were studying and to soften the parts of the stories that were scary or confusing or violent. And that was wise, that was faithful, that was good ministry instinct for those teachers to be careful about what they were teaching in the presence of young children. But the fact of the matter is that we've been addressing in this series those complicated stories from the Old Testament that need to be re-examined with a grown-up perspective. Because with a grown-up perspective, you can engage the parts of the story that maybe you earlier missed. With a grown-up perspective, you can engage these stories in their entirety, even if it means dealing with the scary parts, even if it means dealing with the confusing parts. And together, with our collective perspective, we can discern what it is that these stories have to tell us about the God who made sure that these stories got preserved for us in the pages of Scripture. And today, we're talking about an Old Testament story that frankly has caused a lot of spiritual heartburn. And it's a story that's found in the book of Joshua beginning in chapter five. We're gonna put most of the pertinent verses up here on the screen for you, but you're welcome to follow along in your own Bible if you like. Before we dive in, I'm gonna speak to the adults in the room, the grownups in the room for just a moment and give you a little clue and tell you about some uh, softer language I'm gonna use today because of who all's in the room. I'm reminded that when my children were beginning to enjoy playing video games with me, we wanted to be careful about the language we were teaching them to use to describe what was happening in the games. And so if, say, Mario or Luigi jumped on a turtle's back and squashed it and then picked it up and threw it into a lake of lava, we didn't say that Mario destroyed the turtle. We said Mario eliminated the turtle. And since we have small children in the room today, I'm going to use some language like that to help us navigate some issues that could be kind of thorny to talk about at lunch. over 400 years earlier that he would give to them. In fact, the entire book of Joshua, this book that we're studying from today, this entire book is about the campaign to take possession of the land that Israel had been promised. But the problem was that the promised land was not empty void, and just waiting to be inhabited. The promised land was occupied by several tribes of people collectively known as the Canaanites or the Amorites, depending on which passage you're reading. Those are almost synonyms for one another. And it's a problem that they were there, not only because they're living in the places that the Israelites intend to live and have been promised that they can live, but also because the Canaanites, the Amorites, are known for their immoral behavior for their wicked and idolatrous worship practices. If I was to describe for you the kinds of things that were common in Canaanite culture, the kinds of behaviors that were common in Canaanite worship, we couldn't say it in front of all of the children that are here in the room, but whatever you're thinking, go past that. It's worse, it's really bad. And it's described in other parts of the earlier books of the Bible. And so God promises, God promises to Israel that he's going to drive out these Canaanites, these Amorites from the promised land. And the first big demonstration of that happens after they cross the river Jordan and they come to the city of Jericho. We talked a little bit about Jericho last week. Archaeologists tell us that Jericho was a military outpost, probably like a fort, Our text is going to call it a city, but it wasn't a big place. Think more in terms of the Alamo and less in terms of San Antonio, right? We're thinking about a smaller place, except Jericho had walls around it. It was a garrison that was meant to keep invaders out. And Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, says that when Joshua who was one of the leaders of Israel, when he was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him. Now, this man had some unique characteristics about him. He saw a man in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? This is a good question when you see somebody that's a stranger in a foreign land and they're carrying a sword and walking toward you, right? Are you on my team? Are you on the other team? And the man's answer is neither. In other words, the man says, I'm not on your side and I'm not on your enemy's side, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And the next thing you know, Joshua begins receiving instructions, and it, it makes a transition. It's not instructions from this man, although we can assume that this man was directly connected to the Lord. But God, Joshua begins receiving instructions from the Lord himself about how to lead the Israelites to be witnesses to the fall of Jericho. And the instructions seem most unusual. The Lord says, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Here's Joshua looking at Jericho already. And the Lord says, I have delivered in the past tense. I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all of the armed men. Okay, so we've got an army that we're going to assemble with some other Canaan or some other Israelite guys. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. And have the priests, have seven priests carry with them trumpets of ram's horns in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times. So you're getting the picture here. He's, he's talking about a, a progression. Every day they're going to go out there and march around the city once. Archaeologists tell us it would probably take about 30 minutes. They're going to march around the city once, blowing their ram's horns. And then on the seventh day, they're going to march seven times. And the Lord says, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the entire army give a loud shout. And then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. And that's exactly what happens in the story. In the next few verses of Joshua chapter 6, they carry out those instructions... Every day, Israelites, armed men and priests march around the city and they blow their trumpets. And then on day seven, they march around seven times. And after those seven laps, verse 20 of chapter six says, when the trumpets sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed so that everyone charged straight in. I don't really know how to make the wall collapse for you, but I'm going to ask you to picture that for yourself. Everyone marched straight in, charged straight in, and they took the city. And I gotta imagine, I gotta imagine that this had to be an awesome sight to see. When I learned this story in Sunday school class, this sounded amazing to me, in fact, I had a teacher one year who decided she was going to take this 2D story and turn it 3D that year for us. She was getting bonus points with her teaching. So she brought in all these cardboard boxes that she had colored to look like stones and bricks. And she built a wall right there in the classroom. And we all got little pieces of paper and we rolled them up into little trumpets and we blew our trumpets And we shouted, and then from the other side of the wall, the teacher knocked the wall down, and we imagined how incredible it must have been for God to just make that happen without the Israelites lifting a finger, without the Israelites attacking at all. They didn't fire a single arrow. And it's an incredible story. It's an amazing story. It's a story that we ought to teach to our children and when we teach this story to our children it's the point that we usually emphasize is this idea that we can trust God to fight our battles. In fact, I went back and checked in on a couple of different pieces of teaching for us. I looked at the Jesus Storybook Bible which is written for children as young as four years old and when I read this story, it takes up six pages in the Jesus Storybook Bible to read about Joshua chapter six and the fall of Jericho. And that story ends with this. It says, God's people entered their new home and didn't have to fight to get in. They only had to walk. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story. I checked out a different one that maybe some of you would remember the VeggieTales story of Josh and the big wall This one is a little bit looser on the details. There are slushies involved, and the guards in Jericho apparently speak French. But the takeaway, the takeaway at the end of this story is that following God's instructions is always wise, even if the instructions don't make sense to you. Like if you're instructed to walk around a city blowing a trumpet, and those are beautiful lessons. And I have no issue, no frustration, no disappointment with Veggie Tales or the Jesus Storybook Bible. I think that the lessons that they're teaching to our children are great lessons for t- children to learn. We're talking about a complicated story here with lots of layers. And if kids can latch on to the idea that God's going to provide for the people who follow him and following God's instructions is always wise. Boy, isn't that a great set of lessons for our young hearts to begin to remember But the part of the story that's caused a lot of heartburn, the part of the story that has prompted a lot of debate comes in the very next verse. After the walls fall down, because in verse 21, after the walls have collapsed and the Israelites breached the city, it says, they devoted the city to the Lord and they eliminated every living thing inside. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. And this is the part of the story that Sunday school teachers wisely skip over. This is the part of the story that the Sunday school teachers would instantly recognize as not kid-friendly at all. But we're looking at this story together from a grown-up perspective, right? We're looking at this story together with grown-up lenses, and looking through our grown-up lenses, this verse on its own seems disturbing to a lot of readers. In fact, if you keep reading through the book of Joshua, and if you were to look back at the instructions that God gave the Israelites leading up to this campaign into the Promised Land, you would discover that violence like this is not a one-time event. It's not a one-time event in Joshua, it's not a one-time event in the Old Testament. And you would also discover places where God gives explicit instructions about violence like this. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter seven, God's instruction through Moses to the Israelites said, you must destroy the Canaanites totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. And for lots of Bible readers, for lots of people who approach the Bible maybe for the first time, for lots of people who are approaching the Bible with a bit of skepticism, for lots of people who are approaching the Scripture with a critical eye, this aspect of the Old Testament can become a sticking point. It can become an obstacle. It, become, it can become a, a problem for our faith. This text, these stories sound so violent and they sound so indiscriminate that honestly, when we read them, many of us are surprised to see God provoking such mass extermination. there are other stories in Joshua and other stories elsewhere in the Old Testament where God seems to command and approve of at total destruction in warfare. We can't deny that the Old Testament is a violent text, a violent text. There are lots of battles that are fought in the pages of the Old Testament. There are reports of thousands upon thousands of casualties, many of which were carried out expressly in the name of God. And so the question that an adult perspective has to wrestle with as we read texts like these is, What are these stories trying to teach us about God? What are these stories trying to tell us about the character of God? And this is not a new question. This is a question that for at least 2,000 years followers of Yahweh have been wrestling with. Christians have been addressing this throughout church history. And there have been some incredibly arrogant and famous blunders along the way as people have tried to wrestle with this question. At one extreme, there have been Christians who have decided there's no way that the God of the New Testament could have been involved in such flagrant violence as this. In fact, one famous Christian from the second century, he was born in the year 85, I mean, almost 2000 years ago. This early Christian named Marcion, he came to the conclusion that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament must be different gods. In fact, it was a theory that got him excommunicated from the church about the time he was 60 years old in the year 144. But on the other extreme, some Christians have used the violence stories in the Old Testament as authorization for them themselves to be violent against non-believers. A thousand years ago, in the 11th century, Pope Urban II launched a religious war that would come to be known as the first of the Crusades. He sent soldiers from Europe to Jerusalem to massacre the Muslim people who were inhabiting Jerusalem at that time. And unfortunately, it would not be difficult For me to list hundreds of other examples including many in much more recent history where the name of God has been invoked to promote violence that people wanted to commit on their own. And so it's not surprising, it's not surprising that critics of Christianity jump at the chance to disparage our faith on account of the Bible and on account of church history. Outspoken atheists like Richard Dawkins argue that God must be vindictive and bloodthirsty if the Bible is to be believed at all, and that Christianity has in fact caused more damage than benefit to the world over the last 2,000 years. That's the argument that the most vocal atheists would make. But this morning, I want to briefly make the case in the time that I have left with you this morning. I want to briefly make the case that Christians need not be embarrassed or confused about the passages in the Old Testament that depict divine violence. I also wanna be very clear that these passages do not give followers of Jesus license for violence in any way, shape, or form. But I'm convinced I'm convinced that if we approach these texts as good Bible students, and we talk about this a lot, about what it means to be a good Bible student, somebody who looks at the bigger picture, somebody who takes in all of the information that they can, I'm convinced that if we approach these texts as good Bible students, factoring in everything else that we know about God from what has been revealed to us, then these passages, these stories that depict this divine violence can actually be a springboard for our faith instead of creating an obstacle to our faith. And the key to this whole thing, the key to this whole concept is about recognizing how God is always true to his word and God is always true to who he's told us he is. God is always true to what he has said he will do. And God is always faithful to who he has told us that he is. Now, we don't have enough time for me to do the deep dive that I would like to do here to expand every passage that's relevant to this. And that's good news. It's good news because it means that I'm not having to just go searching for a few random passages here and there. This message is pervasive throughout the pages of Scripture. This message of God's goodness, God's continuity, God's consistency, this message is pervasive throughout all of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I can recommend much further reading in the Bible and outside the Bible for those who are interested. But I wanna mention just a few things this morning pertaining to the fall of Jericho story that make a big difference in the way we read it today. The first thing, and I made some allusion to this last week, is that the, the first item is about the wickedness of the people in Canaan, including the people in Jericho. Last week in my sermon about Rahab, I read part of a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 9 about that evil that God had observed among the people of Canaan, that evil I tried to secretly described to you a few moments ago and said it's even worse than you're imagining that it was, the evil that God had observed among the Canaanites and how the reason, then in Deuteronomy 9, the reason God was gonna drive them out of the land ahead of the Israelites was not because of the Israelites' righteousness. It was because of the Canaanites' wickedness. But what we didn't mention last week is that God had been watching that depravity escalate hundreds of years. In fact, it was about 500 years before Joshua when God was speaking, making a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 when God said in the fourth generation after being slaves in Egypt, your descendants will come back to this place for the sin of the Amorites or the Canaanites has not yet reached its full measure. And what we see in this statement from God to Abraham 500 years before the battle of Jericho happened, what we see in this statement is that even though the people of Canaan were wicked in the ways they had lived, in the ways they had worshiped their manufactured gods, Yahweh had been patient with them. Patient beyond all measure of doubt that Yahweh had been patient with the people of Canaan as their evil progressed. I could point you to passages in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that would, that would reveal God's promise where he says, I never, never destroy a nation without giving them a chance to repent. I will never destroy a people without accepting their repentance. God is consistent about this throughout all of the scripture. And so Yahweh was patient with the Canaanites. And this is exactly who God has told us that he is. You see, when God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai back in Exodus, one of the most powerful moments that happens in that book full of powerful moments is when God reveals his nature to Moses personally. Exodus 34 says, The Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming about himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. Don't miss this. This is one of the most powerful couple of verses in the entire Old Testament. It's it's worth highlighting. It's worth underlining in your copy of your Bible. But listen to what the Lord says about himself. Listen to all of these different descriptors. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. When God explains to us who he is, when God walks by and he protects Moses from almost from certain instant death by covering Moses' face as God passes by with Moses in the cleft of the rock, when God reveals his identity to Moses, God says, I'm a God who's full of mercy and justice. I'm a God whose character embodies grace and holiness. And so God's character demands that he is a God who is patient and forgiving and who also takes stubborn sin seriously. And in fact, when we look at the entirety of the whole story of scripture, when we consider all of the words of the Old Testament and the New, when we consider the words of the law and the words of the prophets, when we consider the words of Jesus himself, we discover that God's plan has always been to call the world to repentance. That God's plan has always been to invite the world to change their ways, to point their faces toward the God who created them, and that God's plan has always included making a way so that sin could be forgiven and final judgment could be avoided. One of our most famous verses in all of Scripture, maybe the verse that's most well-known in all of our society, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish. Right? This is the gospel we teach. This is the message we live. This is the story that has become ours, is that God loves the world, and there is a time when those who do not receive God's salvation will perish. This is our story, as difficult as that is to hear. But as I prepared for this lesson, and I've got to tell you, I've ached over the best ways to explain all of this. This may be the more challenging lesson we've done this summer. But as I prepared for this lesson, I was reminded That all of the characteristics that God has told us about himself are good characteristics. In fact, I think you would agree with me, I think you would agree that the evil and the wickedness in the world needs an ultimate judgment by a good God. There's a professor at the Divinity School at Yale, Miroslav Volf, his name is hard for me to pronounce because he's from Eastern Europe. He grew up in Yugoslavia in a part of the world that during the 1990s was war torn, decimated and divided by all kinds of hostilities in the name of religion there were groups of Muslim people fighting against groups of Catholic people fighting against, against groups of Orthodox Christian people and then a minority of Protestant Christian people and everybody who used to be neighbors was fighting against one another. A quarter of a million people became casualties to that war. Miroslav Volf lived in that part of the world during those days. And he writes this reflection about the evil that he saw and how it correlates to his faith in a good God. He says, I used to think that wrath or judgment was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person And that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them, he says. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath, I'm still quoting Wolf here, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were eliminated and 300,000 were displaced My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. He says, or I think about other atrocities, and he goes on to list some that have happened even since the war in Yugoslavia. And he asks these rhetorical questions, quoting Wolf again. He says, how does God react to carnage by doting on the perpetrators in grandfatherly fashion, by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would not be able to follow a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the, God, of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love, he says. God is wrathful because God is love. That's the kind of message that can only be shared by somebody who has the lived experience of somebody like Miroslav Volf. But I know that when you turn on the news, when you read about crises that are happening in Yemen and Niger and Ukraine, when you read about atrocities that are happening because of criminal acts and behavior, when you read about abuses, I know that when you watch the news or read the news, your heart gets angry too. Your heart gets angry at those who seem stubbornly resistant to living as they were designed to live. Your heart becomes angry at those who have decided to rebel against the Creator. And deep down, deep down it's good news for us that God has promised that one day all of the evil and the wickedness in this world will be dealt with. All of the evil and the wickedness in this world will be judged. And so you ask, why would a story like Joshua chapter six be placed in the pages of our Bible? Why would stories like this about divine violence be included in our scriptures. I believe these stories are included in our Bible to help us prepare ourselves for God's imminent conquest of fallen creation. I believe these stories are included in our Bibles to help us learn to take God seriously and to take God at his word. I have a favorite college professor who teaches at the college and graduate school levels. I took a number of classes with him. And one year when I was still in student ministry here at Heritage, we were having an area-wide youth ministry gathering and some youth minister invited him to come and speak, this graduate professor, come and speak to the middle school and high school students about the book of Revelation. And I thought, oh boy, not only is that going to be a complicated text, but this guy's not used to communicating with middle school students at all. Like he's used to talking to people who are deep into theological study of their own. And I had my doubts about how that would go. And he summarized Revelation in a way that was so memorable and so helpful, so useful, that even though I didn't write it down, I can still quote it today, He said the whole story of God and this epilogue to the story of God that we find in Revelation, he said it goes like this. He says, there's a cosmic battle going on between good and evil. God wins in the end. You have to pick a side. Don't be stupid. Yeah, I didn't make it up, so you can clap for it. I didn't make it up, you can clap for that for sure. There's this cosmic battle going on, God wins in the end, you have to pick a side, don't be stupid. And that's what I read when I read, when I read passages like this. When I read stories like this about people like these Canaanites, these Amorites, who for decades, centuries, generations, had continued to escalate their violation Of God's law and the natural law. Those who had turned on themselves, those who had abandoned their children, those who were determined to live according to evil and wickedness, and finally a good God, a good God who is compassionate and gracious, a good God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, a good God who maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness and forgives rebellion and forgives sin, that good God said, I cannot leave the guilty unpunished because that would not be good. And so in the end, after all of the opportunities that the people of Canaan had to see what the God of the Israelites was doing, and even after seven days of the people of Israel marching around their walls with the, covenant, the, the Ark of the Covenant going in, for, in front of them and reminding them of the power of God that they had heard so much story about. After all of those days, those who chose to repent, Rahab and her entire family, her father and mother, brothers and sisters and everybody in their houses, those people were saved because of the goodness and the graciousness and the forgiving nature and character of God. Those people were saved. But those who said, no, 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 we will continue to take things into our own hands. We will continue to rely on the gods that we've manufactured. Those people received the judgment that they were due. And in God's grand plan, in God's consistent timeless plan, in the plan that has existed since the beginning, God's goodness has always made it possible for you and I to choose to be on the side of righteousness, to choose to entrust our lives and our futures to the goodness of God. And so we don't need to be afraid of these passages and we don't need to be embarrassed about these passages. In fact, we need to be grateful. We need to be grateful that in the grand scheme of God's story for humanity, There will always be the opportunity for humans to choose good and evil. There will always be the opportunity for people to choose God or to choose themselves. You've got to pick a side. Don't be stupid. Because God's made a way for us.